Good morning. Are we all here? Good morning. What a great time of worship this morning. I, I want to say this to you today. We uh, have uh, made a lot of tweaks in our sound system over the last few weeks, and um, we're kind of glad at how it's working out, kind of happy with how it's sounding, and hope that you find the same thing. We've removed dead spots in the, in the worship center, so that there are, are less spots where sound is not clear. And uh, that's not only for our worship time, but that's uh, also especially during our time of the Word. But thank you for all the adjustments we've been making and uh, being able to uh, handle that. Uh, a less harsh sound results by a more full sound and a more clear sound. That's been the heart of it all. But I, I want to just personally say thanks to Andy and the team that has led this change and uh, to our sound system people. They work hard every week. Give them a hand, would you? Because they do work so hard. Good job. Well, we have a lot to do this morning. We're going to cover the entire chapter of Luke 12 today. So take your Bibles this morning. And if you have those Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 12. No matter what version, translation, no matter what form of Bible you have, iPhone, tablet, or leather-bound version, open it up if you would. Luke chapter 12 today. We're going to cover most of the chapter. And this is in the middle of our Jesus series. The Jesus series is a walk through the Gospel of Luke. It's our habit. And it's our conviction that the books of the Bible are assembled the way they are on purpose. That God had a grand design, and that grand design was that his people would walk through the text of Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to understand the entirety of each individual book. So often in the course of a year, we'll go through a book, and this year, almost exclusively in the book of Luke, all the way till Easter of next year. And now we are about halfway through it, and we're in a very important uh, part of the uh, message of Luke and the life of Jesus. We call this series, this particular part of the Jesus series, the Havoc series, where Jesus begins to teach and he sees havoc being created everywhere. Now, you know what havoc is, don't you? Havoc is disturbances and oppositions and all kinds of things pop up that distract and can divert if we don't know how to handle that havoc. Two weeks ago, we looked at the spiritual havoc that takes place when Jesus sets people free. And he casts the demons out of people and all kinds of spiritual opposition came roaring back at Jesus in that ministry he exercised. And then we saw religious havoc, the legalists, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers began to oppose Jesus when he began to deal with the reality of who God was and who God wants us to understand him to be. This week is about cultural Havoc, the havoc you face because of the culture you're in and because of your human tendencies. Our human tendencies create all kinds of distractions sometimes when Jesus calls us to follow him. And we're going to look at those today. Please stand with me as we read the first part of Luke chapter 12 today. Luke chapter 12, we're going to read the first three verses right now, and then we'll look at other sections as we walk through the morning. Cultural havoc, beginning in verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another, and that's quite a crowd right there, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to pause there, remind you that last week we looked at chapter 11 of Luke where we identified five dangers of hypocrisy. I made the statement, you might be a hypocrite if you allow the outside of the cup to be clean, but the inside filthy. We just kind of walk through five signs of hypocrisy. So Jesus continues that conversation, beware 
of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be real. I love our statement that we make all the time. Real people who have found real hope and real life in Jesus Christ. We're just real here. It's not about religious pretense. It's about being real. So beware of that leaven. Verse 2. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. That sets the scene for what we're going to look at this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, you who knows every heart, every thought, every fear and concern, you look into our hearts today and you see what's real, you see what's there. And Father, I pray today that you'll let our hearts be exposed for each of us to see what you see and to be able to be assured that you love us, that you care about us, that you won't leave us in a place of hypocrisy or fear or anxiety. All the things that plague our culture, Lord, we don't have to be gripped by. And Father, today as disciples of Jesus, we want to know how to walk in a way that's free. Thank you, Father, for setting us free through what Jesus did on the cross. Teach us today. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. Jesus starts the section with the word beware. Beware. The idea behind the word beware is be careful you don't move off course. Beware is often used in a nautical sense. Be sure you don't get sidetracked by winds moving in the other direction as you sail on this life of faith, but also be aware of the hidden reefs along the way. And we're going to talk about some hidden reefs in Jesus' words in Luke 12. These hidden reefs lying beneath the surface of the sea on which our boat sails, our ship of faith sails, can, can literally shipwreck us. It can literally cause us to run aground and not be able to move forward in the direction that we're supposed to be going in. So beware is a key word that flavors everything that we're going to look at today. Today, you have a target that you're supposed to be following as disciples, and that target is Jesus. How he lived, what he says, how he calls us to live is our target. And we need to be careful that we navigate our way directly to him around the hidden reefs of human tendency and hypocrisy, often birthed in fear and greed and ambition and move in the right direction. So today I'm going to identify four hidden reefs in this journey we're on, this journey of faith. Four hidden reefs. So if you're a note taker, you want to begin writing these four hidden reefs down. In the form of statements today, I'm going to give you these points, these hidden reefs in the form of statements as we walk through almost all of Luke chapter 12 today. So kind of buckle your seatbelts and grab hold of Luke. Keep it open throughout the whole morning. Jesus is teaching his disciples about these hidden reefs. So first of all, notice this. Instead of fearing men, Jesus said you need to rest in that you are valued by your heavenly Father. Now we need to dive into verse 4 to see that. Verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, that's a capital O, the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is Jesus' way of saying fear God more than you fear men. It'll be a reef, a hidden reef that'll, that'll shipwreck you if you fear men more. Then he says in verse 6, are not five sparrows, so for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. 
Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you're more valuable than the many sparrows. Instead of fearing men, rest in that you're valued by your heavenly Father. Now, I want to take a few moments to camp on this idea of fear. It's amazing how many people live in fear. It's amazing how often fear crops up in our lives. Now, the disciples were afraid for their lives. They feared different things than we fear. They lived in a violent, wicked age. If you lived in the Roman Empire and you were not Roman, say, for example, if you were a Jewish person living in a Roman rule time, then any Roman soldier could put you down. He could put you to death just because he wanted to or because he saw some flaw in how you obeyed Roman rule. The disciples were afraid of their lives. They were not just afraid of their feelings of being hurt. They weren't just afraid of being discomforted in some way. They were afraid for their lives. And so Jesus begins talking to them about their fear, and he touches on that fear of death. We fear for different things than they did. We live in a violent age, but not quite nearly so violent as theirs. For example, we fear for our acceptance. We're worried about our self-esteem. We want to be loved. We don't like it when people don't love us. We want to be accepted. We want to belong. We fear others' opinions. It's amazing how afraid we are of someone else's opinion. Today, people are hurt and bothered when they are defriended on social media. I said that in the early service and nobody even smiled or looked around. I don't think they understood what social media was. But I know people who have had to have a little bit of counseling because they lost a friend on Facebook. We fear that. I read recently an article from USA Today that talked about the dominant fears of Americans in 2016. And, and uh, it was just recently printed. I looked at it and want to kind of give you those top 10 fears of 2016. They're not all that predictable. For example, the number one fear named by those in this survey was the corruption of government officials. So 60% of them who were surveyed said, we're fearful that someone in Washington may be lying to us. Now, I've got to tell you, I understand why they're afraid. <laughs> Number two, 41% said they were afraid of terrorist attacks. 39.9% were afraid of not having enough money for the future. 38% were afraid of being a victim of terror. 38.5% afraid of government restrictions on firearms and ammunition. Must have been a Southern survey. 38% <laughs> were afraid that people they loved would die soon. 37% afraid of economic or financial collapse. 37% afraid of identity theft. 35% afraid of people I love becoming seriously ill. And this was amazing. 35.5% were afraid of the Affordable Care Act, Affordable Health Care Act, Obamacare. They were afraid of that. Fears that people have that are fears on a large scale. You know, if you got into the dictionary and began to look at all the different phobias that people have, the list is endless. We have categorized almost every kind of fear that humans can have. And, and like I said, the list is long. There are words we cannot even explain. There are words that we can't even uh, spell, the words we can't even pronounce. It's all over. It's ubiquitous. You know what that means? It means it's everywhere. Fears are everywhere. And rarely do they stop. I have a problem that I have from time to time in a 
with my cell phone. I have people call me all the time that don't know me and shouldn't have my number, but they call me and they're salesmen. Anybody have that problem where people call you and they start in on that sales pitch, you know, the sales pitch that, that never stops for anything. They don't have to breathe. These people on the other end of the phone usually don't have to breathe. And I'll stop. You know, I don't hear what they're saying. I can't tell what's going on. And, and I'm, I'm looking for some recognition of voice or recognition of name or recognition of company. I can't, I can't find them identifying anything. So I'll say, what company are you with? Or, or who are you with? Or why are you calling? And, and rarely do I get a clear answer. But this particular phone call I got recently was a person that just started into their sales pitch. And no matter how I tried to, to stop them or to get them to pause, they wouldn't stop. They just kept talking, 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 talking. And we were in the car and they were just talking, talking, talking. Finally, I said, stop. <laughs> and finally, they stopped. I said, not interested, hung up. <laughs> Sometimes when I think about the never-ending list of fears that are everywhere in our lives, I just want to say, stop, stop. Why are we so fearful? The most common phrase in the Bible is, and you know the answer to this, fear, fear not. Say that with me, fear not. Jesus is getting these disciples ready to follow him, and he's saying, let me just... Open up your chest and deal with the heart issue right now that you need to have dealt with before you can really follow me, and that is the issue of fear. I want you to think about some of the fears in your life, and I want you to think about how they dominate you. Paul Tripp, in a great book called Dangerous Calling, wrote these words. Listen to these words. Fears can cause you to forget what you know and lose sight of who you are. Fears can make you wish for a control you will never have. It can cause you to distrust people you have reason to trust. It can cause you to be demanding instead of serving. It can cause you to run when you should stay, and it can cause you to stay when you should really run. Fear can make God look small and your circumstance look big. Fear can make you seek from people what you will only be able to get from the Lord. Those are powerful words. And that's why Jesus began dealing with his disciples' fear right away. Because if they feared man more than they feared God, they would not follow God. They would follow men. And that really is a whole heart of false religion and hypocrisy. The Pharisees were afraid of the opinion of men. They wanted men's applause instead of God's pleasure for their lives. So as a result of that, they built systems of religion that said, I can look great on the outside. Doesn't matter what I'm like on the inside because all I'm after is the applause of men because I fear the opinion of men. And Jesus was saying to the disciples, don't ever be in that place. Stop that. You and I have to come to the place of being totally unafraid of men for us to follow Christ fully. One of my great favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. Many years ago, this verse became very real to me. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. You know, one of the greatest dangers you and I can be in is in that situation of being more afraid of man than of God. And, and Jesus knows that. And so Jesus began to deal with that problem. Look down in verse 7 of chapter 12, the verses we just read for just a moment. He said that, indeed, the very Numbers of the hair on your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You have more value than many.
sparrows. I think this is kind of an interesting exchange right here. I mean, think about this. If we're looking at this from the outside and we don't feel all the emotions in the moment, it doesn't at first make sense. These disciples are afraid of death. The Roman government, they're afraid of the Pharisees and that hierarchy of religion. And Jesus says, don't fear men, fear God. And then he starts talking about hair and birds. I mean, face it, that's weird. We're moving from you being terrified of your life about whether you're going to make it to the next day or not. And we're talking about Jesus talking about fearing God who has the ability not only once you die to ensure your death, but also where you go for eternity. And now Jesus is saying, look, the numbers of hair on your head are numbered. And look at the birds, the sparrows. The Father sees them. And of course, when you think through what this says, you realize that what Jesus is saying to them is this. He's saying a disciple overcomes fear by trusting his father who values him. Because God counts hairs and God counts sparrows and he knows everything about them and you are more valuable than those. I told you a few weeks ago, my wife and I have cats and I've not lived it down yet. I mean, I still have people that talk to me about me being a cat lover, like I've somehow sold out dogs or something. I, I'm a dog lover too, as well as a cat lover, so let's just settle that. I don't have to choose one, right? But one of the things that you get when you have cats in your house is you get the realization that they're hunters and no lizard near our home is safe. And no bird near our home is safe because there are three cats and they all know how to hunt. Not too long ago, because we leave our garage door open a lot, some birds flew into our garage and built a nest there. Some sparrows built a nest. And they built a nest in the bookshelf just outside our garage door. It's about eye level to where I stand. And so I can literally look at the shelf and see them building this nest. And then after they built it, they, of course, laid eggs in the nest. And so I would give Kim a regular account of these birds, these two sparrows, and these eggs, three eggs that are in this nest. Day by day, we watch them. I make sure the cats are not, you know, out in the garage hunting these birds because I know it's doomed for them. And I'm trying to protect these birds. So anyway, I give this regular report. The eggs hatch, the birds grow up a little bit, they begin to learn to fly, you find them on the garage floor, hopping around, put them back up, you know, and they learn to fly. So eventually they flew out. And during the course of that, my wife made this statement to me. Now my wife is one of those people that doesn't often say a lot, but when she does, it's usually very witty, very funny. She's extremely intelligent, has a really sharp wit about her. I'm giving her those reports about these birds, and here's what she said. She said, honey, it looks like I mean, it's almost like you fathered those birds, you care about them so much. And I thought about that when I was thinking about these verses. It's almost like God cares about those sparrows, those little animals, those little birds with the feathers that we don't think anything about. And he thinks highly of them. And if he thinks that much of them, what do you think he thinks about you? You whom he has prepared eternity for. You for whom he sent his son to die on a cross for. You for whom he says, I'm going to lead you and I'm going to give you a life that you couldn't have. And, and I've made you in my image and I, I have my mind on you and I have my plans for you. And I know the number of hair on your head. Fear not because you're valued. You see, the truth of these statements here, the truths are powerful. I want you to repeat these words after me. Three phrases. The first one are you ready? The first one is very simple. 
Repeat after me. I am loved. Say that. I am valued. This will never change. The next time you face fear, the next time you worry about your life or provision in your life or worry for your life, I want you to remember those words. I want you to remember that Jesus says to his disciples in a way that's unforgettable, dealing with hair and birds and about your value being so much greater than that. You are loved. You are valued. That will never change, ever, ever, ever change. For all time and all eternity, your Father in heaven has his eye on you and he loves you and he values you. Isn't that an amazing truth? Hidden reef number two. Hidden reef number two. Instead of greed, be content and invest in eternity. Look in verse 15 of chapter 12. The dispute comes up about a family who is dividing the inheritance and a man comes to Jesus and asks him about it. And Jesus in verse 15 says, Beware, here's the word again, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Great truth there. And then Jesus walks into a parable. Now that parable is very familiar. A man has many things and he says, what am I going to do with these things? He said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store all these things that I've gained through the years. Look down in verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Well, let me just be honest with you today. This is a huge issue with you and with me in 21st century America the most materialistic nation in the history of the world, and we live in it. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you have is bad. It just simply means that we need to beware of greed. If ever there was a time where this statement Jesus makes is true, it's now for the disciples that could otherwise be distracted. The word greed is an amazing word study. If you dig into the original it is really a combination of two words. The Greek word is pleonexia, and it means these two things. It means more and to have. So greed is a word that means to have more, to want more, to desire more. More than what? More than what you already have, or more than what someone else has. Jesus is dealing with the fear of not having enough. Not having enough to satisfy, not having enough to fill an empty heart, not having enough to make it feel like I'm loved by others or accepted or successful in the world. You see, that kind of emptiness of soul causes us to hoard, to cheat, to extort, to, to become stingy, and to become selfish. Someone said it like this, it's the longing of a soul not satisfied with God. You see, you and I, if we can't find a place of contentment and place of satisfaction, then what, basically what we're saying is that God doesn't satisfy us enough so we have to fill our lives with other things. Now, there are some of these things that we need. Jesus also addresses that. Your heavenly Father knows everything you need. Trust him with that. We need to beware, though, of greed. Did you know that greed is a mark of a false believer and a false teacher? In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, 
as well as in the book of Jude, there is a warning against what's often called creepers in the church, those who come in with a false message. And Peter describes them as having a heart trained in greed. That's all they think about, how to get more, how to take from you so that they can have for themselves. But it also affects true believers. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, a verse stood out to me as I read it this past week, and I've never really seen it in the context that I'm looking at it now with. But look what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, written to the church at Ephesus, a very wealthy place, and here's what the words are. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Do you see what stands out in this particular verse? We know immorality is bad. We know impurity is bad. But why would the Holy Spirit put greed at that, same, that very same level? Now, I get it. All sin is bad. But the reality is some sin has bigger collateral damage than others, obviously. All sin separates, but some sin digs a deeper hole for us to get out of. And this is one of those verses that talk about the huge collateral damage that happens. Immorality, big damage. Impurity, big damage. And greed, greed, a lot of damage. I thought that was really interesting that Paul said that. You know, whenever Jesus talked about our possessions, he used a parable of the soil in one particular place where he talked about the four soils and talked about one type of soil where the weeds grew up and choked out the word and it didn't bear any more fruit. And in that, he explained the soil as being the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And they grow up and they choke out the word in our life. Now, Jesus is warning his disciples about the same thing, the greed or the deceitfulness of riches. And that phrase caught me. How are riches deceitful? I mean, $100 is $100, right? Or, or, or material possession is a material possession, right? Not right. Because the truth is, when we get something, we often see that that's not enough and we need something else to go with it. Have you ever bought something and all of a sudden you realize you need to buy something else in order to go with it or it's not complete? And once you get that something else, have you ever noticed that you need to get a third thing to make it all work together and maybe a fourth thing and before long, you've made four purchases instead of one to take that one thing that you got and make it fit in your life or your context or whatever it might be. That, that is a description of the deceitfulness of riches. And I really hope nobody's mad at me who's about to remodel their house right now. <laughs> Not what I'm talking about. Talking about the mindset of greed that says I've got to have more and more and more because I haven't yet acknowledged that what I now have does not satisfy me. Beware of greed. Look at what it's moving to. It's really a, an amazing parable he gives. If you look in verse 18, Jesus describes this person that's greedy. And this person is saying, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the interesting thing about that phrase is that it's a phrase that describes someone that's about to exit from active life. I'm going to take all I have, find a good place for it, and remove myself from real life and just enjoy what I have. It's almost as though someone is saying, I've got enough possessions to make me satisfied. I don't have to do anything for anybody else ever again, nor does anybody else have to do anything for me. 
Let me just tell you, the life that Jesus Christ called us to live is not a life of self-sufficiency. It's not a life of self-satisfaction. It's not a life of self-contentment. It's a life of serving. It's a life of following him, serving him, and being content with where he has us, something that we struggle with from time to time. Instead of greed, be content and invest in eternity. See, that's what the solution is. Jesus said this to that man. He said, instead, instead of building all these things for yourself, you should make yourself rich toward God. Now, I know some wealthy believers today who have great jobs, high-paying jobs, who practice this. They practice this in the sense of saying, I, I have enough for myself, but I am also aware of everybody else around me, and they practice giving that balances their life in such a way that keeps everything in perspective. By practicing generosity, and what you learn and what you live is, it's not all about me. And what you do is you stifle some of that greed in your life. A paycheck ought not to be a chance to practice greed, but it ought to be an opportunity to change the world with the power of the gospel. It's awful quiet in here today. You still with me today? Amen? You see, instead of greed, we need to be content and invest in eternity. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Here's the third reef. The third reef is, instead of anxiety, be confident God is in control. Look at chapter 12 and that in verse 22 now. He said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Look down in verse 30 and verse 31 here. He says in verse 30, he says, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Now, Jesus is dealing again a little bit with the fear of things or not having things, and worry is a word he uses. Anxiety means to be troubled. There's a similar word in the book of James, chapter 1, that is translated doubt, but I love the way that that's translated. It's very similar, very synonymous with it. It means to be split-minded. You see, when we worry, when we're anxious, we think, on one hand, the bad what-ifs that could happen. On the other hand, we think, but God makes these promises. And so we're split-minded. We can't decide where to land. Do we land on the worst possible scenario or even just a, a sub-attractive scenario? Or do we land on this scenario, God's in control? And anxiety means we waver between the two. We worry when we don't have enough confidence to land on the side that says, God knows my needs. If I'm seeking first his kingdom, everything I need will be added to me. I'm going to stay right here. Worry pulls us backwards. It's a hidden reef that shipwrecks faith. We know we should trust, but we worry. I had a good friend about 20 years ago who was a retired police officer. His name was Roy, and Roy was a constant worrier. He worried about everything. And I remember one day, and I mean, he, he acknowledged that he was a worry wart. He, he said, you know, I never think a calm thought. I always think thoughts of the worst possible scenario and on and on. And one day he said to me, John, I know that worrying works. It works when I worry. It works when I'm anxious and I worry about it. And I said, how do you know it works? He said, because 99% of the time, that which I worry about never happens. <laughs> so I know it works. I said, no, what you're saying is 99% of the time you worry needlessly. He goes, that's really what I'm saying. You see, Roy trusted God, but he struggled to trust him because of the worry and the preoccupation with the worst case scenario in his life, the what ifs. You know what if? The what if question, the answer to what if is not reality. 
Did you know that? What if this bad thing happened? Well, you're not even dealing with reality. You're really not even thinking in the same way at this moment. Someone said, well, I want to be prepared for everything. Let me ask you a question. Is God not prepared for everything? You don't have to be prepared for everything. God is prepared for everything. It's important for you to take anxiety and take doubt and to move it from the side of you being in control to the side where he's in control. I had a very good friend who came to Christ as an adult. He said, the day I came to faith in Christ was the day I resigned as the general manager of the universe. I used to worry about everything. He said, I'm the one that was trying to control everything. But when I gave my life to Jesus, I resigned as the general manager of the universe. And my life has been peaceful uh, in an unbelievable way since that time. Now look at what Jesus says in this particular passage. He says some similar things. Consider the ravens. God feeds them. Consider the lilies. God clothes them. And God uses them for his purpose. So don't be anxious. Let me give you a statement. Instead of anxiety, we are to be confident God is in control. And let me make this statement. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. And trust God to work out all the details. Just do the right thing. Because if you're landing over here on the worry side, you're not going to do the right thing. You're not going to do the faith thing, the trust thing, the obedience thing. You're going to second guess every command Jesus gives you. But if you trust him, you're going to stand over here and say, I don't understand it. I don't know why. I don't know how it's going to work out in the long run. I don't know what plan you've got, God. But you said this. This is where I'm going because I trust you. You trust your life, your day, your future. You trust your spouse, your children. You trust everything you have with him because he's trustworthy. Even the ravens trust him. Even the lilies trust him. Can't we trust him? Then number four, hit and reef number four, finally. And maybe most pointedly and painfully, instead of regret, be assured. Now you need to write this down. You need to think about this before I share with you what this is about. When you drop down to the last section of this chapter, verses 49 through 53, Jesus says something very unusual. It almost looks like he's changed gears, but he hasn't shifted He's continued to prepare his disciples. Here's what he says. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. You know what Jesus is talking about is the Passion Week that's ahead of him. The week of Passion is the week where Jesus was tried. It's where Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood and then was arrested by the Roman soldiers, taken before the trials, that were conducted unethically, illegally in order to condemn him. He went through the scourging. He was nailed to the cross, hung on the cross, died, rose again, third day from the dead. This is the week he's talking about. I have a baptism to undergo how distressed I am. And part of all that was the rejection of Jesus by the people. Do you remember when Pilate stood up and said, what should we do with this man? And the people said as a crowd, crucify him. Here is the one who came to die for their sins and these people want him dead. His brothers wanted him dead, sending him to Jerusalem before his time, at least in an attempt to do that. He was misunderstood. He was rejected by the religious leaders. The prophets came to tell about Jesus and Jesus, the Bible says, came to his own and his own did not receive him. A baptism to undergo means that you will certainly suffer some rejection. Verse 51, do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. 
For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against daughter, and against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Those are some hard words. It almost... It's so though Jesus is preparing his disciples for those tough times when they follow him and others don't understand. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been there where Jesus says, I want you to do this and you know it? It might have to do with your vocation. It might have to do with an act of obedience. It might have to do with your money. It might have to do with uh, saying no to something that everybody else is doing. It might have to do with what friends you keep. And the friends that don't want to do anything but pull you down don't get that, so they reject you. You ever been there? And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but sword. I'm preparing you. And here's why. If you and I live on the truth, by the truth, for the truth, there will be those that hate us. The word hate is used frequently in the scriptures. You know that? Jesus said, if they hated me, you know they're going to hate you. There will be a time when, as Jesus was disembraced, when people decided that we're not going to follow Jesus, we're not going to let this man reign over us, then that's what happens with you as well. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, he's not worthy, can't be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is, you have to be willing to disengage with those that won't go and embrace me. Can't be involved in the fear of man or the worry about everything else. You have to follow me because I'm God. And it's okay. I'm in control. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm about to undergo this baptism. Let me just say this. Truth is not negotiable, nor is it changeable. And it sometimes brings a sword that divides. Are you with me this morning? You understand that? And there are sometimes decisions in your life that you're going to make. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to have to regret those. Be assured I've gone before you and I've made the hard ones too. Can I just be honest with you? That as a pastor, as a, as a speaker of truth, as a lover of truth, there are times that I've lost friends, not by my choosing, but because I chose to stand on the truth. They chose to disembrace me, disassociate with me. It's the hatred the Bible speaks about. You know, that can actually happen in your family to a degree. And Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to realize there's a cost, but you won't have regret in the end. I've gone before you. I have six kids. My wife and I raised six kids, and I'm so proud of the good job my wife did in raising those six kids. Phenomenal how that woman poured into their lives. I wish you could see the prayer journals. Heck, I wish I could see all the prayer journals she's written down. She won't let me see them all. Prayers written for each of our kids. My kids are all adults now. They don't all embrace all our convictions. And it's grief. It's like a sword. They don't all embrace that because as adults, they have a choice to choose. They all came to faith as kids, then kids. As they grew up, they got in the mainstream of culture and all these ideas swirling around them. Now, I'm confident of this. 
the gospel that grabbed hold of my heart will also grab hold of theirs. I'm confident of that. But until then, there's some grief. A few years ago, my oldest daughter called and began talking with me about the guy that she was dating. And, and she was 34. We thought that she might want to get married. And, and she called and began talking. And, and I'd never met this guy, great guy, but not a believer. Never met him. Hadn't been up there since she started dating him, and they were already talking about marriage. She said, Dad, if we get married, will you, will you perform the ceremony? I said, I'd have to meet him first. Well, can't you just say yes? I said, no, baby, I can't. Why? I said, well, because if he's not a believer, I cannot. I can't perform your ceremony. The scripture teaches us by conviction. You can't marry a believer and an unbeliever. They can do it. I just can't do it. I said, really, Dad? It's my wedding. It'd be my wedding. I said, can't do it. I'll be there. I support you. I love you. I can't do it. You know how hard that was? To say something like that to your firstborn daughter? Do you know why you would say something like that? Because there's one. There's just one. But there's one you love more. And that's Jesus, God. And she's married. I love the guy. I'm convinced that one of our next conversations will be the conversation where he comes to Christ. I'm convinced of it. I'm praying for that. We believe that. But Jesus said, I had a, a baptism to undergo. I'll be rejected. And let me just say, you can be rejected somewhat. Still love people. But still remain true to the truth. That's part of a disciple's walk. It's part of it. You don't have to live with regret. Be assured. You don't have to live with fear. He's in control. You don't have to be anxious. He'll provide. All these things are reefs that'll keep you from walking with Christ. You know, I was looking at this this morning. I was thinking, if I have not given my life to Christ yet, if I haven't come to the cross and said, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, if I haven't done that yet, and I see a text where it says, instead of fearing men, I'm assured that I'm loved by my Heavenly Father and valued by Him. And if I hear the fact that I can be content no matter what I have or don't have because of eternity, if I can be content that, that instead of anxiety, I can be confident God's in control, and if instead of regret, I can be assured that Jesus has gone before me, why would I not follow someone like that? Right? Why would I not say, give me that salvation and everything that comes with it? Because you've gone before me and you control my life and you bring rest and contentment and assurance and I don't have to live a life of worry I don't have to live a life of regret I don't have to live a life of confusion because you care about the hair on my head and you care about the sparrow and the raven and the lilies of the field you care about me and when you leave today you leave knowing you're loved, you're valued, and that will not change. It will not change. Would you bow your head for just a moment? Counselors, would you come to the front? In these next few moments, we'll close our service and our invitation begins right then. And I want you to hear the words of this invitation. This is a God, the God, who says these things to you and ask you to respond 
to that, to him. What will you do? What will you do? Now, I know there are those in this room today that have never started a relationship with Jesus. They've never done that. And I'm going to tell you today, you have nothing to fear by coming to God or everything to fear if you don't come to God. Come to the Lord today. Give Him your life. Walk forward and talk to one of these people. Pray with them and, and just say, look, I've got all kinds of fears and all kinds of anxieties or I've got all kinds of trouble because I'm trying to live as a disciple and, and I'm being rejected. Or you might come and say, you know, I'm not sure I've ever really gotten started in this yet and I want to start today. I want to do that now. Can I plead with you a moment? Please come to Christ. You know why we do the invitation this way? So you'll have time to have a conversation. So you'll have time to get the answers. So you'll have time to ask the questions that you need to ask and you'll have the privacy and not be rushed and all eyes are not on you. It's just you and whoever you're talking to and God. What a great opportunity for you today. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And when I pray, I'm gonna invite you to come and just, just uh, linger, stay a while and visit. If you're a guest today, I'd love to invite you to our guest reception center after you make a spiritual decision today. But I want you to know today, you're loved, you're valued. This will never change. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I want to thank you today that we are loved, that we're valued. Thank you that it's permanent, that you've secured it. And Father, I know in this room today there are those that need to make spiritual decisions and Father, they're going to linger for a few moments and pause and then make those decisions or they're going to leave. It'll be to their regret that they leave. And I ask you today to compel them to move in their hearts that they would walk forward, make a decision to follow you because of your great love for them. And our personal response is a response of faith and confidence that you would do what you said you would do. Father, I pray today that many would choose to do that I thank you and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.